0: I'd like to welcome Katrina Noel. She is the president of No Research and co-founder of Scoot Insights. Uh, She helps decision-makers choose the right direction, but also she is an innovator, and I think you'll see that as we talk today. She is an innovator of qualitative research. Welcome, Katrina, how are you?
1: I'm well, thanks for having me.
0: I wanna jump right in and ask you, tell me about your journey to the world of qualitative insights. In particular, are there key turning points that helps you get to where you are now?
1: Yes. Um, I get asked this question frequently and as a qualitative lifer, um, the story gets further and further back to tell. Uh, but I did start my career in marketing rather than market research for, as I say, like a hot minute, (laughs) it was a a couple of jobs very early in my twenties and, um, I had a vague idea of what I wanted to do, but really the first turning point and pivot was seeing qualitative research in action. And I was just, there is a very low level note taker and I didn't realize that someone's job could be being a feedback loop and allowing brands to hear what customers wanted and needed. And then I spent a little while trying to get into the business. (laughs) Uh, It was not as direct of a line into qualitative as it is now so um took me a little while to figure that out and haven't left since
0: so what was it about qualitative that really just drew you in i mean what what initially attracted you and and uh why did you think you'd really be good at it
1: so it's not a flattering analogy but i kind of think about it as like who's poking the stick so is the brand poking the stick saying you need this you want this loyal to us, spend your money on us, those kinds of things. Or is the consumer saying, excuse me, I need this. I want this in these ways. You could make my life better. And I think realizing that you could be on the other end um, and help promote that. And really, we weren't saying it at the time, but pass the mic, give a voice uh, to folks um, back to companies that really do impact their life was such a meaningful, exciting idea. And Honestly, I still describe what I do in that way, especially to, oh, you know, friends and relatives that still don't quite understand what it is I spend my day doing. I do say that a lot that I'm a human feedback loop and that my companies um, allow brands to listen to their consumers in a way that they don't, usually without folks like us stepping in to help.
0: Are there any particular aha moments that stand out in your career that really has put you also on the doorstep of innovating uh, for qualitative research?
1: Most of the innovation that I have wanted to do, pushed to do, made possible, has been about eliminating the friction or lessening the friction between the receiver and the story. Um, it's not innovation for innovation's sake. This isn't you know, wanting to have a tech product and so figuring out what to build. This is really about how do we make sure that what we learn has the impact that we want it to have and that it really should have within the organization sponsoring the research. So it's about reducing friction, making observation easier, making participation easier, uh, making the story come to life in bigger and better ways that has really spurred us on to create and innovate along the way.
0: Interesting. Tell me about a couple of the innovations you've done and how that's made a difference for you and your clients.
1: Yes, uh, we do uh, over the years, we've done many intercept interviews, we do a lot of work and shopper insights and retail and that whole world. And so one of the best ways of doing that is to physically, back in the day, um, intercept um, a participant and ask them about an experience they just had. And we realized that that was helping our um, retail clients so much to hear that raw, in the moment, feedback. And we started to think about how we could do that for other entities. And so the when we created Booth Insights the first time around, we were creating spaces to intercept people and talk to them about all kinds of things, not necessarily a retail experience they just had. So that got us into physical pop-up locations all over the country and setting up physical booth locations. And that was in 2019.
0: So these were like outside the mall. These were not in the mall. These are like, kind of what kind of locations are we talking about?
1: You know, it's interesting. You can rent a lot of spaces if you look. There are always unused art galleries, um, places in malls that are in between ownership, things like that, um, especially in high foot traffic areas and cities. Um, there's all kinds of places that you can book and bring a crew in for the day and make that a welcoming space it was challenging it was challenging but it, it, it was extremely fun to do um, we actually the last one we ended up doing was in the Mall of America so we thought we graduated to like the biggest pop-up of all time um, <laughs> and that was in November of 2019 wow. so then we had to innovate again because there was no such thing as foot traffic anymore any longer right six feet is a very hard space to do an interview within <laughs> so we Then in 2020 and in this past year, we've continued to build and refine a digital version so that we can intercept people online, bring them into this type of pop up space and have an immediate conversation uh, with them there. And actually, we just it was very exciting. Very recently, we just piloted an approach where we worked with our clients web team to help that happen. So to just immediately invite them into an interview after the behavior that they were looking to unpack. Um, So it's really exciting to be able to do that. And now as the world hopefully opens up again, it can be, you know, which version or a little of both would you like?
0: And have you found some interesting uh, findings as a result of this new way of doing it?
1: Yes, I, we benefited a lot from in, in all ways, in all parts of our business. We benefited by people sort of upping the ante in their digital savviness and being very, you know, Zoom comfortable and webcam comfortable. Where that used to be a little bit of, a, I'm not sure, I'm really getting to know you well enough, but it has, it has just become, you know, people's prime mode of com- communication. So that has that has helped tremendously, and I think just the the ability to create a space for the things you want to tell a brand. I mean, we all know these, right? You have some experience and you're like, oh, if I could just tell customers, some customer support this piece, right? And you know, it's never going to get answered. You're going to get some, how was your experience survey? And you're going to click the frowny face and no one's ever going to listen to you. <laughs> but it's really exciting to meet people right in that moment where they get to say, you know, I'm glad you asked, let me walk you through this and what it would, how things could be made better for me.
0: Sure how challenging is it to get clients to undertake qualitative initiatives versus quantitative
1: well i'd like to think of it less as versus and more of like a yes and approach we talk about qualitative to those who are not already preaching in the choir right um that it is a almost necessary at this point complement to quantitative data. So whether you're getting your quantitative data from s- primary research and surveys, syndicated research, social scraping, wherever you're getting the quant, um, there is a story to be told. And we th- that's how we talk about what the qualitative does is bring that to light, unearth the whys, illuminate the insights within that story. And that, I think, if I think back, folks that have been reticent, are never reticent again, right? The second time around, the qualitative is in the proposal. Um, I think it's, it's, it's something that you have to see and realize and appreciate where it can sound kind of like human touchy, feely, fuzzy, perhaps to some folks who are looking for the percentage marks. But I think once they see it and they, they see what we capture and how it brings to life those very important numbers, it's much easier the second and third times.
0: I agree with you. I think qualitative and quantitative complement each other, and they should be an and as opposed to an or. But I also agree with you that, I mean, in my experience, I really, uh, there's something about qualitative that's just fascinating and interesting when you get to the the deeper understanding of what really drives people. Uh, And I think there's insights all around us. Uh, And I think people just need to have more conversations with their customers and employees. And it's amazing what you can unearth. In fact, in my book, I talk about today's insights are tomorrow's facts. And I was curious, how do you feel about insights in that uh, context?
1: We talked about this before. I think, I think of an insight as a realization that inspires action. Because you can have all kinds of realizations. You can have aha moments, right? And I like to distinguish that from an insight, which is a po- sort of more powerful aha, aha with legs, right? Um, and I think facts is facts is hard for a qualitative researcher so i will just i will just note that so i think maybe an indication of the future a peek into the future a hint of the future may probably because i'm in very much in the business of saying well this was a qualitative sample size so <laughs> maybe maybe my version of the insights are glimpses um, into potential facts
0: <laughs> what do you think are some uh, maybe top 3 misperceptions that people have regarding qualitative research uh, that you can talk about?
1: Only three, only three. Well, if you Um, want to
0: have more, that's fine.
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, I think um, right now we are in a linguistic and semantic puddle um, where people who talk to people are called lots of things. They're called design thinkers. They're called usability, UX, UI designers. Um, There's lots of folks in the space who are asking questions and listening and performing analytics based on what they hear. Uh, So I think, I'm not sure it's a misconception, but there is often a kind of mismatch between what you're asking for and the right professional or organization to go to for that. So we get a lot of requests of, We need a survey. We need a usability study. We need to talk to some people. And you just need to get past all the language and say, what's your objective? What are you hoping to learn? What piece of the puzzle do you not understand? And then we can really talk about how how qualitative insights can help you with that. So one challenge, I think, is getting past the nomenclature. Um, I think the other thing is that it is not going to feel actionable. And we do use the phrase directional, right? We use that phrase a lot with qualitative, but having a direction means you can take action, right? There is something to providing a path, a direction, a way forward, that insight to the future, right? Like you talk about um, that can set someone on on the right path, on the right direction. I think that's very valuable. And I think we get sort of downplayed quite a lot of like, well, you can't really rely on it. You can't really take an action. But if you're getting a very clear direction on where you need to move based on listening to people, I, I think the, the braver brands who, who sort of jump over that um, and allow it to move them forward really benefit by it.
0: And there a third one?
1: The third is that everybody thinks they can do it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Frankly. And what skill sets do you need to, to be successful in qualitative?
1: I will say yes. Every anyone can ask someone else a question. That is true. That is very true. I would argue that most people can do an interview or have a conversation, right? I think the um, the complexity is our own fault because we. I tell my team a lot. We're very much like a duck that is paddling like crazy under the surface, but it looks super smooth and easy. <laughs> um, so so the industry's done that to itself, but. I think the skill set that is involved is a really innate curiosity about people and how the world works. Really, authentically wanting to know those things, want to explore those things, a, br- a brain that connects ideas and draws conclusions from them, a strategic thinker that can keep the uh, the objective of the project on one side of their brain and the story they're listening to on the other side of their brain at the same time. Uh, that is a very full skill set to be able to not only ask people questions but do all the rest of it that is
0: involved in the in the work. So that brings us to like the moderator's guide. How do you train new people when you hire them uh, on how to develop a really substantial and, and good moderator's guide?
1: You mean developing the guide or developing themselves as moderators?
0: Uh, let's do both. Let's do the guide and, and, and as a moderator.
1: So this is when I hope not a lot of my clients are listening, but um, we tend to call, we know, we write the guide for our clients we're an agency, we're working on behalf of our clients, we want them to know that we understand, that we know what to ask, in what order, we know all of their priorities, all of the hypotheses that they have that they want us to probe on, all of those things. So we write a very long, thick Word document that dictates the flow and makes them know that, yes, we're going to cover all of this. And then the actual guide that most of us use looks a little bit like this. (laughs) <laughs> and has, I need to follow this consumer journey. I need to understand A, B, and C about their life, this product, the job it has to be done in their life. You know, there's a very, like a cheat sheet. So I think we we think of it as kind of a cheat sheet. When you leave that conversation, you need to understand all those things about the person or people you've spoken to. And that's why I still like the word guide for it because it is, it's like a map. It's like, you have to, you have to check these boxes. You have to understand these things. Um, how you get there gets more creative often as the project goes on. Cause you start learning, oh, that way of asking it is better or, oh, there's a segment here. There's a difference. So if I identify someone as person type A I'll need to steer differently. So it's really um, a map and a guidepost rather than a script at the end of the day.
0: And how do you actually train people to ask questions properly? Uh, I think that's a a big part of the the training of a moderator, correct?
1: Yes, Uh, I think there are lots of, well, not lots, there are a few, really great training facilities out there that have full programs. And I highly recommend if someone is interested in getting into the business to be trained, it is not a certificate that anyone is going to ask you for. It's going to give you confidence that, you know, the strategy behind how we conduct interviews and group discussions. That said, I also am a big proponent of layering yourself in. So, there is a way to ask questions. And then it, there is you as a person with your personality, style, and how you ask questions. And I have, you know, I hear that in some modes of teaching or in some organizations, it's very much, you know, strip yourself away from the and be a blank slate, be, you know, um, a completely neutral, non-personal person in this conversation. And that is a technique and style. I happen to believe that if you bring yourself to the table and you're as as transparent as it is appropriate to be without leading the person you're talking to, that you form connections faster and you actually get deeper more quickly because the person recognizes that you are being transparent with them. You care about their story. You're sharing who you are with them. And I don't mean where you're from and how old you are. And if you have a dog, like I'm not, But it's, it's your essence, like who you are and how you communicate. And so I really try to make sure that anyone I train keeps a hold of that because that is their strength.
0: Can you give me an example of how you do that when you conduct groups?
1: It's probably how I conduct this interview. Like <laughs> I don't feel like I'm any different. I, you know, I, I don't turn a switch and turn into a different version of myself. Uh, the switch I'm turning is my goal for the next hour or my goal for the next 90 minutes. And it's that purpose and that sort of strategic purpose and what I, I'm listening for and what I'm there to achieve that changes, not my personality. I, I would be exactly like this if I were interviewing you.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I know what you're saying. I think if you appear authentic and real and uh, just want to engage with people, they're going to ex- do exactly the same, right? And, and it's going to encourage the entire group to, to do the same with you. What impact has COVID had on the uh, qualitative research?
1: Oh, um, <laughs> you know, it was challenging. It was challenging for companies or organizations, entities who had not yet embraced digital. Th- that is not the majority. I think the majority of us have been honing digital techniques for a decade or more, and we're thrilled to put them into place or crank them up. Like in, in our case, we've been, we have had a digital practice since 08. We've been about 40 to 50% digital until 2020. So it was more about, you know, just changing the project design rather than learning how to do something differently. But I think the industry was stuck in a place where they felt like there were a lot more boundaries than we actually found out there were. That We found out there were far fewer boundaries and that, It was about connecting to people and not so much how you tactically did that. It was just about finding the space somehow, some way for that connection. So I think it opened up a lot of doors. And I think people have a lot, have a vaster toolbox that not only they can use, but that they feel comfortable using that has been tested. And they know that those insights are still valuable regardless of how they got them and are perhaps better because it has been designed with more options to use in that design.
0: Are there certain unique advantages that digital or online methodologies for qualitative offer that surprised you and are unique just because of the online uh, medium?
1: I have always said the main benefit. The main benefit of doing something remote is from an inclusivity standpoint. So the number of people that could journey to or, invite people into their space at a certain time on a certain day with no life stuff coming up, right? Who lived close enough where the client team could comfortably fly to, who had you know ab- had ability to be able to walk and drive and get themselves there, had income to be able to get a sitter for the kids and come to a group. All of those things um, made the net that we were casting Smaller than it could have been, and so I think what digital allows is a widening of that net and an ability for more people to have their voices be heard. And qualitative, that to me is is the biggest, and that that is on any metrics. That's on geography, diversity, um, income level, uh, ability level, language level. Uh, there's so much more that we can do if we hear from more people, and that is that's really the main benefit, as far as I'm concerned.
0: And what do you see happening to qualitative research going into the future? Do you see any trends or directions you think that it's gonna be heading?
1: I will say the investment in qualitative has just kept growing in the past couple of years and the appreciation for the need to listen to people, um, that human beings are not static. And if they answered a survey six months ago, perhaps they think differently now and maybe you should ask them (laughs) about how life is now versus October, Um, it's just grown. It's so gratifying to see this is all the way down to a lot of mergers and acquisitions going on in our space. This is about investment in new technology platforms in our space and uh, kind of a focus of combining qualitative and strategic work more intimately so that really it leads into strategy and it leads into brand building and all of these other great things that it can turn into. So I think there's there's emphasis there, there's funding there. And I think we're gonna be on this track for a little while. Um, we've all gotta hang in for the ride. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I think it's all, it's all very good things in our near future. Um, perhaps that's an insight that will be the fact of the future. I, I'm not sure, <laughs> but I hope so.
0: So do, uh, how much is actually being driven by brands and companies as well, versus just technology within the industry?
1: I don't think there's innovation in the industry unless there is a need from brands. So I think, we, you know, we are all beholden to the brands and companies and organizations that need the services, that need those insights. And then the iteration follows, um, follows the need. And I I do notice that when speaking with our clients and potential clients, uh, they want that richness, they want video, they want stories, they want personas, they want that, um, feeling that they can hang on to something that represents their target audiences and that's what they're coming to Qualitative for. And then I think we all run around like crazy trying to make that happen for them, but but they're definitely leading the charge um, and the investment.
0: What do you see in, uh, in terms of innovation that you think you'd like to pursue in the future regarding Qualitative that's been kind of spinning around in the back of your mind saying, you know, I wish I could do this and I think I might try this.
1: Oh, I think it's, for me, it's about increasing flexibility. So where where I feel like a, a great majority of the industry is stuck in air quotes is there's five or six methodologies, which one do you want? How long do you want them to be? And give me your criteria for your participants. There's this very sort of like set inputs that go into project design. And I think the freedom of saying let's mix and match. Let's see if we do some mini groups and then intercept a few people. Maybe then we talk to some stakeholders and get their two cents and sort of play around with the pieces more organically. I I don't know if that's a technologically based solution. I think it's more of like a mindset shift of here's the timeline, here's the budget, let's move around within it to get the insights we want. Because often you go you're in the middle of a project and you realize, oh, we just learned something. If only we could talk to this type of person in this way and, oh, we've already got the budget and the calendar set. And it would be great to, to come up with a flexible model to say, here are the widgets or the pieces and let's move them around while we learn so that we can pivot more easily. So again, I don't know if there's any tech developers out there that that sparks something for, but I, I like to see that, that flexibility increase.
0: How challenging is it to uh, sell a client on a new methodology that you're uh, have come up with? Uh, I would think that might be a little bit of a challenge for you now.
1: Yes. Selling anything new is tricky. We are a big fan of having our, um, having clients help us beta test things. And I think that is one way to show we're not trying to snake oil salesman, this, you know, this is not this new great thing that you've just got to try. It's we're working on something. And the reason we're working on it is because we're trying to solve problem X. We think you might benefit by solving problem X. Is there anything you want to know about? Let's do this together and let's figure out if that actually does help you. And I think that approach and that transparency has really helped us get a few things off the ground. And then not only might they come back, for the methodology, right? Um, but they feel like they've been a part of it and they should be a part of this. This should be a collective combined effort. So I think that that's, that I mean, it's, it's a luxury to be able to do, but it's a really great way to get something off the ground. And then you can tell that story and you can say, you know, this isn't just us at the agency thinking you need these things. We actually have these partnerships who've helped us form this. And that actually helps us tell the story better to other potential recipients.
0: You know, we've always talked about doing qualitative with customers and stuff. Have you seen any uh, shift or changes towards doing qualitative with employees, uh, especially, you know, post-COVID?
1: And that's, we, we actually, uh, on the rare chance that we do get to do internal um, employee-based research, it is incredibly gratifying because then it's almost one more level of, deeper engagement. You're not only talking to somebody about a thing or a service that impacts their life, you're talking about their life and their employer has a huge impact. And so we count ourselves very grateful for the employee research work that, we, that comes our way. There's a great opportunity, I think, for companies to take a deeper dive than the required light touch. I feel like a lot of people take the best places to work, survey, they do it annually, they crunch the data and they kind of check a box. And when we notice companies going a step further and saying, well, wait, that's interesting. That unearths some things we need to learn more about and kind of using that as a launch pad to bring in a third party and, you know, safely, anonymously get that qualitative feedback for them. It, it just, as in with any study, illuminates that story. It points an arrow towards what they could fix or change or add um, to keep, to keep their, their teams happy. And um, yeah, it's, it's more people should be doing it. It is tricky because it kind of lives within HR. So sometimes they may not know that something like Consumer Insights exists and could be leveraged. Um, but, but yes, I think that's probably another soapbox that I should be on about that.
0: Yeah, and I think there's a, I mean, there's a clear linkage between you know happy employees and happy customers, and you know I think you're talking about your feedback loop for companies, but that's the most immediate feedback loop, right? The front line of employees and trying to incorporate that on a daily basis, uh, and that's why I think yeah, companies that do focus with the employees, uh, really do benefit from a, a better feedback loop all around, and I'm sure that's what you've seen as well, right?
1: Yeah, and we um, we work with one organization that before we get involved, they talk to their call center. And I've always thought that's such a great practice because who knows what your end customer wants the needs better than the people that have to sit on the phone all day long and deal with them, right? So it's so great that they kind of, the, the business problem or the research objective is taken to that team. They give input. And then we have that, um, we have those hypotheses and those, those stories from them to make our work richer and, and give us some breadcrumbs, you know, to know what to look for because they see it every day.
0: And what role does social media play now in terms of getting that qualitative insight as well? Like, you know, you say companies go to the call center, which is a great idea, but sometimes they may not have that or don't do that. So how much emphasis do you put on the social media part of it to help you with um, uh, qualitative research?
1: I actually just spoke about this recently because it's, wow, I feel like there's a theme here. It is another underutilized um, qualitative connective tissue because it is sort of an unmoderated pool of feedback, right? It's sitting there. It is technically qualitative, like it may be a lot of it, but Mm -hmm. it's all people saying stuff. Um, I think a lot of people are nervous about social data because... Are they bots? Is it all negative all negative and all positive? Is there, are there you know, brands making up their own reviews? Who's on social media? Who would post about it versus, I totally agree. There are, there's a lot of filtering and a lot of biases that you have to scrub out of any kind of social media research. However, if it is a topic and or a brand that is being talked about, it is important to count that. And to listen to that and to see what you are learning from that channel. I think it is also a really good way of learning before, let's say, creating our participant screener to figure out who to bring in. Or in writing that discussion guide, what sort of language should I be using around this topic? What is out there in the world? How are people talking about this topic naturally? Maybe it's not with the language that the brand uses to talk about themselves. I should know that before I go into having some conversations. So again, I think it is another complementary methodology and data set, which right now is in the customer service department. They're putting out fires. They're making sure they're answering customer complaints. But that same data set could be used to better inform not only qualitative, but also quantitative.
0: Sure. Yeah. I think there's been a big shift. I mean, before it was about brands going out and having conversations with their customers, but now customers are having conversations, even if the brand wants it or not, it's happening on on, on a digital platform. People are having those conversations. And I think that's uh, caused a a big change and shift and uh, a lot of emphasis. And I think probably in many cases, a deeper understanding as well uh, of of what the consumer is thinking. And what do you think about uh, clients? Say, you know, I don't like social media because a lot of it's negative. Uh, What do you you tell clients, how, how they should be really viewing the negative comments?
1: Well, I think you have to take everything with a little bit of a grain of salt, right? And in any way that you get negative feedback, what are you going to extrapolate from it, right? What is the trend that's going on? What are these negative comments all circling around? Is there a theme? Is there something that that unearths for you that makes you realize like, those individual comments are hurtful and I don't like hearing it. But if we keep hearing it, Maybe it's leading us to something that we should talk about, right? So I, I think it's 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 pulling out of the individual and going to that collective view and saying, you know, what light bulbs are flashing for me if this is the topic of conversation, especially if it's not what you want them to be talking about. Like you've spent time, money, and energy on a marketing campaign, and that is not what they're talking about. They're talking about something else. Like, ooh, that is a time to listen and be aware, of because you know the message that you're wanting to convey is getting muddled and. There's a lot of time and energy that went into that message. And so figuring out how to redirect the conversation or at least highlight um, what you want the brand to portray and be um, is really
0: important. It seems like many times there's real opportunity in those negative comments. If you just really, I think, uh, listen to it carefully. Do you have any examples of of that you've seen that happen for one of your uh, projects?
1: It was very interesting. We did... uh, project that combined social and qualitative for, um, and I can talk about it because it was a pro bono project um, for a client of ours in the financial services space. And there was a lot of conversation, as you can imagine in 2020 about government policies and stimuli checks and PPP loans. And a lot of it was negative, but what was interesting about the negativity for ourselves and therefore our clients, was that there's nowhere to turn to help. So there was all this negative, and it was, if only I had someone to talk to, turn to, someone who could, I can't afford a fancy financial advisor, but I really need to make my way through this. I mean, that's the subtext. The literal context is, this all sucks, I'm upset, but there's nowhere to turn. But that, like, there's nowhere to turn made ourselves and our client think, oh, there's an opportunity here. How could this be this negativity be leveraged. And this is actually pointing at some white space and some need that's not being met.
0: Right, yeah, real opportunity, yeah. I think that's great. So tell me, in the world of consumer insights and research, who would you love to have lunch with and why?
1: I'm really glad you gave me this question ahead of time. <laughs> <laughs> um, because Kate Murphy, if you are out there, <laughs> I would... Love to spend time with this woman. She read. She wrote a book called "You're Not Listening," and um, she interviewed people of all professions. So she's not necessarily in the insights game, but she basically wrote the manual for empathetically listening, um, which is a, such a big part of what we do, honestly, both in our field work and with our clients, right? We are constantly listening, absorbing, understanding so that we can be of help and and so that we can um, do our analysis, everything across the board. And we did, I, a, a colleague group of mine passed this book around and we're like, how does she know? And it was really interesting to read about all the different professions that also have to pull the same levers and how everyone does it a little bit differently, but sort of the lost art of listening. I just, it was one of my favorite reads of last year.
0: How do you train people in the art of listening and being empathetic? that's one of the things you have to train, right?
1: The art of being empathetic is very, very hard to train. Um, curiosity and empathy, tricky, tricky to train. I think that is more of a kismet of someone approaching a role because the role is right for them. There's like a, you're a good fit kind of situation there. Um, What I don't train is how to fake it. So it's never good to fake either curiosity or empathy because people can tell. Um, But the listening thing, there's some, I think the empathetic listening is easier than the allowing space and time to listen because you think you're there to do a job and interview someone, but sometimes your job is to count quietly to three and let the person think and then come back to you with something and to not get in the way of that thought. So a lot of, you know, I used to have a post-it up on my desk for a while that just said, talk less. Like, just, just stop, like let them finish or let them have a thought. Or sometimes you don't have to ask a question. You can just repeat one word from the last sentence that they said that intrigued you. Like if you asked me the question about employees, I could say, oh, employees? And you probably would have gone on. You probably would have said why you think that's an important target audience to talk to so there's tricks like that to help to help yourself give more time and space to the person um and yeah, so we, we go through some things like that, um, especially with video deliverables being so hot right now. One of the things is it's very important not to interrupt someone else because otherwise you find yourself in a sizzle reel very quickly. And that's not where we belong. We belong behind the scenes when that deliverable comes out. So it's more, it's more technical and tricks about how to make sure that the true time is being given to who we're talking to.
0: And what role do you think intuition plays in being a good researcher?
1: It's pretty key. I would say if intuition is astute reading of other people and being sensitive to how you are in a situation, right? If I define it in that sense, very, because it's very important to understand how you are connecting with someone or maybe not connecting that well with them and shift to accommodate to make that experience as fr- fruitful as possible. So this is not an industry where you can barge in and ask your questions no matter what. There is a, there's an intuition, a people intuition. Um, I would say that's actually opposite on the analytic front. Be very wary about being intuitive on that front. Read your transcripts, do your coding. You know, maybe maybe leave intuition for the in the moment and then leave the data for the, uh, you know for the analysis.
0: Intuition.
1: That can be good and bad.
0: (laughs) Well, you know, I I think they're often related to the empathy and the, uh, you know, just uh, listening as well, because as you said, you have to have intuition about not jumping in and and having a sense of kind of, you know, because it takes a while for people to tap into their subconscious.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Or even their conscious. Like we, you know, life is complicated. So even just just remembering what you think you think. sometimes you need a minute.
0: (laughs) Exactly, yeah, yeah. But you need a little bit of intuition, I think in the moderator's guide too, because you have to kind of envision the flow of the conversation to make it more impactful, um, don't you think?
1: Oh, for sure. And I think one of the best ways of doing that is just, uh, it's so simple, just practice it just grab someone in your household or a friend or someone and say, can I just talk to you about this topic? Like, I know you're not buying a car right now, but I have to talk to people about their purchase journey, buying a car. So just humor me and run it and you'll see, you know? Um, So there's some, there's yes, intuition, but there's also practice and there's also preparation.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I think you can hone your intuition skills for sure by having more and more conversation, more practice. Absolutely. So Well, listen, this was a great talking to you. I really appreciate it, Katrina. And thank you very much.
1: Thank you. I appreciate the time.
0: Getting to AHA was brought to you by iResearch. To find out more about us, head to iResearch.com. And make sure to search for Getting to AHA in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else podcasts are found. And don't forget to click follow to ensure you don't miss any future episodes. Thank you for listening.